Paul's letter to the Romans. <clears throat> Ladies, don't forget that there's something here for you um, Friday night, Grace Cafe. If you're available, love to have you be a part. This is, as I told you uh, weeks ago, probably the, uh, the most intense section of Scripture anywhere in the Bible concerning the doctrine of justification by faith, and I hope that you have not yet uh, tired of hearing it explicated again and again and again, but at least in the mind of Paul, it was something of, the, uh, of, first, of most importance, and at stake, well, of course, was his beloved Judaism, that is, uh, his beloved Jewish nation, and at one point later on in this epistle, he will even offer his own soul in exchange for them if, uh, if they would come to the place where they could understand this. Uh, he has articulated and announced uh, the doctrine so clearly in verses 3, 4, 5, and uh, 6. And then now in this section in which we find ourselves beginning at verse 9, he is dealing with some objections, some, some objections that he knew would exist in the minds of his Jewish audience. One, of course, being circumcision. They, they laid so much stock or put so much stock in, in, um, in circumcision thinking that it, there was some kind of meritorious value in being circumcised. And he tries to address that issue in verses 9 through 12. And then, of course, the other issue that was uh, the thing that continued to um, uh, trip them up and continues to do so today has to do with the role of the law. And so we're in He's dealing with objections. He's done circumcision in verses 9 through 12. And in this new, verse, or this new section, beginning in verse 13, he begins to address the law and uh, its proper under, uh, the, the role that it properly plays. Let me read you just uh, verses 13 through 15, and then we'll pick up and go from there. Uh, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Uh, he is going to try and answer, does the law itself justify? Uh, how could that possibly be um, if you understand simply the role that it properly plays? Well, that's, that's what we're looking at tonight, gang. But to get to it, let me, let me um, try to define a couple of terms in verse 13. Uh, for instance, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world. What promise is that? That is a promise that is found in Genesis 22 on the heels of that great event with Isaac. So if you can uh, let me just read that from, uh, for you. It's in Genesis 22:16 through 18. This is the promise that Paul is referring to. In Romans 4.12, where God says to Abraham, uh, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's the promise that is in view in verse 4 to 13 of Romans 4. For the promise, that promise, that he would be the heir of the world, kind of a, um, an interesting note here, 
the heir of the world. Of course, Judaism thought that uh, Abraham was the heir for them. And this points out that he was never intended to be the heir of just Judaism, but uh, the entire world, all the nations of the world. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or did not come to Abraham or to his seed. That's another important word. And fortunately, we're not left in the dark as to what Paul has in mind because he defines that seed for us in another one of his letters in Galatians chapter 3, if I may read you that, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And so... Um, the, uh, all the great promises that come to us come through not our being seeds or a seed, but being in the seed. That is, that seed being Christ. It is being in Christ um, that makes us Abraham's relatives um, and therefore heirs according to the promise. Now, those are three words that you've got to kind of sort out before you understand verse 13. So I, I, hopefully that will give you some running start as we look at verse 13. The promise was not made, says Paul, through the medium of law. The promise that he was going to be the heir did not come to Abraham through law. That is, um, uh, Paul or Abraham was not asked to fulfill any stipulations, perform any obediences before he could enjoy that promise. Uh, when God makes, makes the promise to Abraham, it came with no conditions that he do anything. It was a promise made of sheer grace. And also, um, that that. The promise that he received in Genesis 22 preceded the law by 430 years. Do you see, guys, that he's trying to talk a Jewish audience into understanding that Abraham could not have been made heir of a promise through the medium of law? Number one, you don't see any such stipulation when the promise was given. And that very law that you're asking about, he says to the Jewish audience, is something that came 430 years later. The righteousness of Abraham came through faith. And um, not in any way. That is, this promise was a promise. Not a, not a deal that God made. You do this and I'll do that. It was a promise made of sovereign grace not asking him to conform to any demands of the law, a law which uh, hadn't even been given and wasn't given for 430 years later. So, no, the promise uh, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the medium of law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. And then he goes on in verse 14. For, and, and this is another argument, and the argument is drawn from the very, is, is based on the nature of law. See if you can get this. For if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, if you get to be an heir by, by obeying the law, then faith is made void. That is, if you get to be an heir of Abraham's by obedience, then number one, understand that faith is negated. It is voided because law 
is always interested in works and performance. Faith is not. Faith is, is something that is set in opposition to works. So the, the, a, a point to remember, ladies and gentlemen, is you can't ever mix those things. Those two things are on a collision course. It is not faith plus works. It is not works. It is, you have three options, and two of them are wrong. It is not works. It is not faith plus works. Those two are in opposition to each other. And if you're made an error by the law, then faith is voided. That's, that's one of the ramifications. And he goes on to say, and the promise is made of no effect. That is, if you're made an heir by obedience, then the promise would never happen. Because if you're going to be made an heir by keeping the law, then no one, the promise would have never come to fruition because no one would have ever kept the law. He says that earlier in chapter 3. And then this law, he goes on in verse 15, brings about wrath. You see, he's, he's continuing to contrast law and faith. Law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. People have stumbled over that last clause, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, can you remember, the Jew is thinking about Sinaitic law. Okay? And Paul has just stated that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Does that mean that every sin prior to Sinai was not considered a transgression? Do you get that? That is, if they're thinking law came at Sinai, and Paul says where there is no law, there is no transgression, then could they have then reasoned that prior to Sinai there was no transgression? That's not what Paul has in mind, ladies and gentlemen. But there is a sense, and he'll say this later in Romans 7, there is a sense in which law gives birth to sin. Let me try to explain. Uh, in fact, in Romans 7, Paul puts it like this. When the law says, he says, I would have never known that I was guilty of coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. Let's imagine, let's imagine that tonight, me and my colleagues decide that we're going to roam the streets of Shelby County and we are going to remove every law, excuse me, every a speed limit sign in the city of Memphis. And we have somehow succeeded in removing uh, all of the limits of driving, that is, the how fast you can drive. So tomorrow morning when you get in your car and head to work, how fast can you drive? You can drive as fast as you want to. But once a law is in place, it is violations now occur. Once the standard has been set, what, what, the, what the law does is just expose violations. It didn't create them. The law bears a spotlight. It, um, it makes conspicuous. That's what the law does. And that has always been the purpose of the law, ladies and gentlemen. To make conspicuous. To expose transgressions. It's not that the law created them, but in a strange sense, if there were no law, there would have never been a transgression. But once law was, once the standard, once the standard was established and you set man's performance up against it, then you could see how miserably he has failed. Which, of course, 
I'm brought along wrath. And then verse 16. And therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace. Therefore, you know, guys, um, Paul begins now to state what he is saying positively. But he says, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. Gang, if you make one standing before God based on anything other than faith as a gift, that is, faith being a gift, then stop for heaven's sake, stop singing all those silly songs about grace. All that amazing grace business, stop singing it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if the grounds is anything other than the gift of faith, it, is not, it has nothing to do with grace. And that's what Paul is saying in 16. Therefore, if it is of faith, so that it might be according to grace. Those two things are locked arm in arm, you know? Works um, demand a performance. Grace is opposed to that. Gang, I, I've said this before in here, um, but be very careful about how you under... And we'll look at that next week a, a little bit more closely, but um, the Bible describes faith as a gift. It must be purely a gift or you have, you have, a, you have negated grace. So even the faith that you possess is not something that you can claim um, any merit to. It is that was given. I mean, you sit here tonight and you see the crucified Christ to you. You sit here tonight and you see the sin that should have deserved wrath and the, and the forgiveness that you have in Christ. You see that good. Great. But you got that by a gift. Because if it's any... If it's, if it's something that you figured out and decided to exercise based on your great um, mental prowess, then it's no longer a grace. It is some kind of, some kind of merit. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. And, and secondly, so that the promise might be sure to all his seed. Now, guys, that, that's, it, it has to be according to faith, not works. Because that's the only way that all of the seed could be assured. Do you get that? That is, Gentile and Jew. If it was according to law that one was made heir, then only Judaism would have enjoyed it because Gentiles didn't have law. It is only because it is based on faith that all, that, that all the seed can be made heirs, even Gentiles and Jews alike. Um, not only to those who are of the law, not only just the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all, uh, father of us all, both Jew and Gentile. Now, verse 17 is a marvelous statement, and I hope I can explain it to you so that you can glory in it the way I've been able to for the last couple of days. Um, it begins with the parenthesis, and of course the parenthesis is inserted, but it does help us in terms of interpreting it. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, gang, stay with me for a minute. Um, if you've napped, time to wake up. Um, I have made you a father of many nations. Where does that promise come? That's a promise that comes from 
Genesis 17.5. You can see it in your little margin, just like it's in mine. Uh, Paul takes us back to a promise made to Abraham uh, in Genesis 17.5. And the promise is simply, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, now think with me just for a second. In Genesis 17, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. What was Abraham's um, status at that point? Well, number one, he was about somewhere around 100 years old. Number two, he was childless. Number three, his wife had a dead womb. She was 90 plus. Now, into that setting, a childless 100-year-old man with a 95-year-old wife, a promise is made. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Why are you going to do that? Since we are way beyond baby-making years, how are you going to keep that promise? Look what he says. Um, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him he believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Okay? Childless, not a 100-year-old man, married to a 92-year-old woman. How are we going to be the father of many nations? I'll tell you how. Because this God is the God who gives life to the dead. He takes a dead womb and He grants life to the dead womb. He takes His son... Guys, yes, we got... Have you ever seen this? Go with me to Genesis 22 real quick. Genesis 22. This is where Isaac, I mean, uh, Abraham's going to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. Uh, maybe I've pointed this out to you before. Maybe, maybe I've done this before. But uh, Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son to the mount. I'll show you and I want you to sacrifice him. Look with me, guys. Um, so verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood, etc., etc. Verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off and Abraham said to his young men, Hey, fellas, you guys stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And notice, and we will come back to you. Wait a minute. He thought he was going to this mountain to sacrifice his son, and he turns to his servants and he says, Y'all stay here. We're going over there to worship, and we will come back. Who's he going to come back with? He's going to slay Isaac up there. The, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, this is the same Abraham that God knew, or that Abraham, this is the same God who Abraham knew raises dead things. He's, uh, he is convinced, apparently, that whatever happens to his son, God can grant life to the dead son that he just killed. And then when he resurrects that son, we will come back to you. The way that he can be a father of many nations is because God grants, dead, God grants life to dead things. About um, 4,000 years later, I know, 2,000 years later, somewhere in there, he brings to life his own son because God grants life to dead things. 
And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, He still gives death. He still gives life to dead things. You know what dead things He gives life to? You. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that it were not, were it not for the sovereign, omnipotent power of God to give life to dead things, none of you would have ever seen the gospel. The, 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 the reason that you and I are, are, um, a lot, are, are, the reason that you and I see things today is because, is because of this. Listen. And you, he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that prior to knowing Christ, your condition spiritually is one that is depicted and described as spiritual death. And what happens to all of us is our, our, our position now is, is, is fixed upon the ability of God to give life to dead things. You know... Um, I'm not exactly sure how much Abraham understood. You know, remember that text I showed you in John 8, I think it's 56, where Abraham saw my day, says Jesus, and rejoiced and was glad. I'm not sure how much Abraham understood. But here's something else Abraham did understand. If I'm going to be the father of many nations, and I'm going to impregnate that wife of mine who is 92 years old, this God is going to have to be somebody who gives life to dead things. He understood that much. He understood that the omnipotent power of God, or the, omnip the omnipotence of God, is something, is something that can give life to something that was dead. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, prior to His wonder-working, wor His grace in your life, you were a stone, spiritually. Um... Let me show you that another way, if I could. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel 36. And then we'll, we'll kind of stop with this. Ezekiel 36. 37 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, but we're going to look at 36. 36 is what is considered to be the Old Testament version of John 3. John 3 is a statement about the new birth. Well, there's, a, there's, there's very little, if any, references to the new birth in the Old Testament except this one. Let me read you, beginning at verse, uh, let's begin, uh, let's begin at, um, let's, let's begin at verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Okay? God is making this promise. I'm going to bring these people into their own land. Then... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, here's what I wanted you to see. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, prior to this wonder-working God of ours working in your life, your heart was a rock. 
It was a rock, ladies and gentlemen. And you notice, the operative agent in everything that's going on here is not somebody jumping through some kind of circumcisional hoop. Oh, I tell you what, if you just get circumcised and obey the law, I'll exchange your hearts. I'll give you a heart of flesh for a heart of stone if you'll just start obeying the Ten Commandments. No, ladies and gentlemen. God comes to a people and says, You're a rock! You're a dead as a rock! And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to exchange your heart of heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Because I'm a God that takes dead things and gives them life. Ladies and gentlemen, you are seated here tonight alive in Christ because God takes dead things and makes them alive. You have a heart in you that is sensitive and tender towards spiritual things because God exchanged the one that was a rock. He gave you one that really pops spiritually. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if our arrival in glory ultimately depends on anything you and I are asked to do, if our arrival in glory depends on anything that God asks you to do, none of us will ever make it. What it depends upon is the fact that our God gives life to dead things. And He begins a new work. And Paul says, I am confident that He who has begun that new work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you in a peon of praise, in a piece of doxology that should turn us all on our ears, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things created nor things uncreated nor things up or down or sideways, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because, because you have skilled your will to persevere. Hogwash. God has kept us. He began the good work. He committed himself to complete the good work. And the good news is that this God never does a half of a work. He doesn't create a half of a mountain. He doesn't create a half of a river. And he doesn't create a half of a Christian. And in that, my friends, we are. That God takes dead things, us, makes them alive, starts to work, and then perfects it. And because he's that, Abraham could hear, I'm going to be a father of many nations, and I'm this. Yeah. Because all the glory belongs to a God who takes dead things and turns them into something to live. That's a great gospel, ladies and gentlemen. And it's the foundation for the entire missions enterprise. The hope is that on the basis of faith, God will take dead things and He'll create a nation out of them. Even many nations. Let's quit.
Our Father, I pray that your people might discover a, a great joy in sensing that you are, um, you refuse to allow us to believe that we are ever um, good enough or can ever perform enough or can ever grind uh, enough to make ourselves acceptable in your sight. It is a great work that you have done among us, O oh God. A kind work that you took dead, a dead slug like Jimmy Young. And he you made alive who was once dead in his trespasses and sins. And my safety is now based on that work that you began and then promised to complete and further promised that nothing would ever separate me from you because of your commitment. We understand, O oh God, that we are saved here tonight because of your commitment to us, not our commitment to you. But it is to you, O oh God, that we bring our hearts, softened by grace, enlivened by grace, kept by grace, it is to you, the God of all grace, that we come and present our bodies as living sacrifices. Because that is the only reasonable service of worship there is. A complete surrender to a God who delights in giving life to dead things. We uh, thank you, O oh God, that you are who you are so that we can sit here tonight and be who we are. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.